This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In his new bestseller, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, Malcolm Gladwell looks at what happens when ordinary people confront powerful opponents. He starts the book by dissecting the classic tale of David and Goliath, challenging our beliefs about what the story tells us regarding underdogs and giants, and ultimately, our fundamental assumptions about power. Adam Grant, organizational psychologist here at Wharton, delighted to interview Malcolm Gladwell, my favorite author. Malcolm, welcome. Thank you. Uh, welcome to you. Yeah. So let's, let's start talking about your latest blockbuster, David and Goliath. Give us the, the core message and idea for you. Well, it's just an examination of, um, of the idea of advantage, um, and particularly looking at when we, when we see asymmetrical conflict, conflicts between one very large and one not so large party, um, how do we account for the unusual numbers of successes that underdogs have in those situations? And that sort of, the book sort of takes off from there to try and figure out whether our assumptions about what makes for an advantage are accurate. Could we just be wrong about who has the advantage in the first place? So we've labeled somebody an underdog, in fact, they're not? Or is it more complicated than that? Well, I mean, I, the, the opening story chapter in the book is about the actual uh, a retelling of the biblical story of David and Goliath. And there it's very clear David is not in any sense the underdog. Properly understood, once he has decided to change the rules of the conflict, the sling in his hand is of is such a devastating weapon that no contemporary observer of that battle would have thought David was a long shot. They would have, once they realized he was winding up with his sling, um, they would have realized it that he was he had he had all of the cards. Um, so there is some of that that we're we're misled by the narrowness of our assumptions about um, what constitutes an advantage in a given situation. And that, that plays out in a wide range of circumstances in the book. So talk to us a little bit about desirable difficulties. Yeah, so I, there's this, that's a notion taken straight from the psychological literature from the work of the Bjorks at UCLA. And they were interested in that in the context of learning theory about it is not always the case that if I make the task of, of learning something easier for you that your uh, performance will improve. There are sometimes cases where your performance will improve if I make the task of learning more difficult for you. Not always, but what they do is they draw a line between uh, uh, difficulties that are ultimately desirable and those that are not. And so I sort of play with that idea in a number of contexts and sort of figure out, are there cases when having dyslexia is a desirable difficulty? That is to say where you end up being better off than you were before. And the answer is there is a small number of cases um, where it's plainly the case that, or at least according to those who have dyslexia and who have achieved enormous success, particularly entrepreneurs are those, that's the group that's most interesting here. We see so many entrepreneurs who have dyslexia. And when you talk to them, they will tell you they succeeded not in spite of their disability, but because of it. And so for them, they view their disability as desirable, um, ultimately. And that's interesting. Um, And that is a very, that suggests that there are uh, profoundly, there's a, that the distribution of responses 
to uh, an obstacle are bi profoundly bimodal. And I think we spend, we, we pretend they're not. Um, similarly, I look at uh, the, this weird association between very successful people and having lost a parent, the fact of having lost a parent in childhood. Not a desirable difficulty. Uh, for some, for some small number of people, parental loss appears to be ultimately a desirable difficulty. Um, again, not a large number, but um, it, it's sort of a, that there does seem to be a class of, of, uh, a class of obstacles that for some people, for whatever reason, have a, uh, 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 have an advantageous outcome. Where do you draw the line? So what, what is it that differentiates people who end up on one side of the distribution versus those for whom yeah. the obstacle is just insurmountable? Uh, I think it's in, you can't draw a bright line. Um, it's not really a perfect, I mean, we can speculate. For example, if you look at the class of dyslexics who end up as successful entrepreneurs, they obviously have certain things in common. They are, they tend to be highly intelligent. Um, in the, I interviewed maybe a dozen of them. And in every case, almost every case, uh, the successful dyslexic had one family member who uh, always believed in them. So if you, maybe one way of saying is, okay, so if, if, you're, if one of the, on, if your only obstacle is dyslexia, then it could be desirable. But if we say, so a child who grows up in a low-income neighborhood who has an average IQ, who has a, a troubled family life, and has dyslexia, it's not going to be desirable. You've got too many obstacles to deal with. But if we start limiting the number of obstacles, then maybe it's different. So that's one idea, that perhaps it's the, just a kind of sheer... Um, another has to do with attitude. I mean, for whatever reason, some people choose to interpret their circumstances differently. Um, there was a, when I was, in one of the chapters I would interview this, it's all about a, a famous oncologist named Emil Freireich, who has a Dickensian childhood, and then goes on to achieve enormous things as an oncologist. And there was a moment in my conversation with him when he describes this just horrendous childhood. And, he, and so he says, he says, so there I am, I'm 16 years old, and I'm wildly optimistic. And you realize it was a complete non sequitur <laughs> But not for him. So he was just someone who, for whatever reason, you know, he was orphaned. He was, grew up in poverty on the streets. He was, you know, the whole thing is just, but he was just like, he just thought that was an occasion to look on the bright side. So he, where does that come from? I have no idea. Well, and I think one of the ways that you bring that to light is, is to invoke this personality trait of disagreeableness, uh, yeah. something with which I struggle and I know you have commented is not your forte as well. Yeah. Um, how does that figure into the story? Well, it's, the, it's this idea. It's a wonderful psychologist at U of T who had a uh, University of Toronto called Jordan Peterson who I had a long conversation with about this, who sort of says if you look at the big five personality traits, he thinks that entrepreneurs are characterized by openness, which is obvious, creativity, conscientiousness, again, obvious, diligence. But he thinks that, the, that they are disagreeable. That is to say, they are not people who require the social approval of their peers in order to... Um, and I think he makes a very compelling argument. And I, 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 sort of, I agree with that topology. Um, Ironically. <laughs> theoretically, yeah. Um, that there is something... Uh, 
that if you're going to do something truly innovative, you have to be someone who doesn't value uh, social approval. You can't need social approval to go forward. Otherwise, how would you ever do the thing you're doing, right? And I'm, you know, I was, I give this story example in my book of Ingvar Kamprad, the founder of IKEA, one of the great entrepreneurs of the 20th century, who does, you know, he at a crucial point in building IKEA, in the middle of the Cold War, he starts outsourcing to Poland, which is just like an unthinkable act in 1961. It's like building a, it would be like outsourcing to North Korea today. You would have to have, you know, so much audacity to do that. And you could imagine, imagine if the head of Walmart said, we're, we're going to start uh, sourcing from North Korea. It would just be a, you know, well, that's what you, you'd have to be, Comprod, who, by the way, is dyslexic, is just one of those people who, like, it just doesn't bother him. I mean, he, he, he wasn't someone who, or if he lost sleep about it, he was more concerned about the health of his company than he was about his public reputation. Mm -hmm. And that, to be able to do that, is not easy at all. And I think, I see that trait, though, time and time again in, in innovators. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit then about some of the advantages of disadvantages. Let's, let's flip this to the other side. So a couple of years ago, Barry Schwartz and I sort of noticed as we looked across lots of different studies that in almost every domain we could find, there was too much of a good thing. Yeah. That everything that we thought might be valuable, whether it's practice or generosity mm -hmm. or you know, pretty much any virtue, sort of if you got too much of it, turn negative. How does that figure into the story of David and Goliath? Well, that, you know, that paper you guys wrote was uh, hugely... I gave you a little shout out in the book. Uh, it was hugely More than a little shout out, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was hugely influential my thinking. I read that paper and I was like, it's such a kind of, it's one of those, it's, it's, the, it's the best kind of insight. It is the most obvious, it's the thing your mom told you, right? <laughs> Which is, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing, right? But it's also the thing that we cannot wrap our minds around. It's just, there seems to be, we cannot, we understand linear relationships, we understand diminishing marginal returns, we cannot understand the idea of the inverted U, that the same thing that's positive at one level can turn negative at the other, with hugely deleterious consequences, I think. Um, and I think that's the mistake that people in positions of privilege make. It's what dooms the favorite, is the favorite assumes that they can extend their advantages indefinitely, mm -hmm. that if what makes me better than you at the beginning is that I have more resources, that if I keep spending resources, I'll always be ahead of you. And it's just not true. You know, General Motors is not a better company, a more nimble, innovative company when it's the biggest, when it's, you know, at the height of its, of its size and dominance in the 1970s. It's backed in profound decline. Microsoft is not more innovative today than it was when it was a fraction of its size. Um, there are numerous... Um, the American healthcare system is not better than other healthcare systems in the world by virtue of the fact that we spend 50% more per patient. In fact, it's, I think you could almost very clearly make the argument our healthcare system is as bad as it is because we spend so much money. Um, so there's a, I don't know, it's this sort of, um, I, once, I gave a talk once at Columbia Psychology Department when I was writing my book in which I presented the problem and I asked the audience, since they were all psychologists, I said, Give me reasons why we struggle with the inverted U. Like, and it's, it's very, they gave me like, so people just emailed them in. I got like 50 <laughs> of them. But it's, it's a really, you know, is it because on some evolutionary level, for most of our history, there was, 
because we never could get too much of a good mm -hmm. thing, we never got to that part of the curve. If you're living on the savanna and there's a drought every three months, there's no such thing as too much food, right? So maybe that's just so baked into our system um, that maximizing surplus is the only way to get through life. Um, that when you're in a world where all of a sudden surplus is um, not just attainable, but surplus in, in the Western world, surplus is a condition of our life, um, that we're just woefully unequipped on some level for uh, dealing with that. It's interesting, though, because when we're in the observer position. We have a different reaction. So we don't want to be the underdog necessarily, but we love to root for the underdog. Yeah. Why? Well, I think this is paradoxical for the following reason. Um, I understand on one level why, and that is because uh, it is a way in which it's a version of the, of the just world hypothesis. It is that the world seems more just to us if material advantage does not um, automatically translate to um, dominance. Right? So we need the belief that those without obvious resources can win in order for the world to seem fair. For the rest, for those of us who are most of us, since most of us are not in a position of power, for those of us who are not in a position of power to feel we have a chance, right? So there's that. But the paradox is, of course, this is slightly tongue-in-cheek. It's why I don't cheer for the underdog. And that is that uh, in a contest between a favorite and an underdog, the, if the underdog loses, the underdog feels very little um, distress because they expected to lose. If the favorite loses, he f feels a great deal of distress because every expectation said he was supposed to win. The empathetic position then as an observer <laughs> is to cheer for the favorite. Right, because if your if your job as an as a, as a <laughs> empathic human being is to want to minimize human suffering, the suffering comes when the favorite loses. Right, so I I remember as a kid watching sports. You know, I I remember it was one of the Olympic games, and I was cheering for uh, I'm a big track person for an athlete who was one of my favorites, who was favored to win, and he lost. And I realized in that moment that the pain he felt was so much greater than the pain that, you know, that the, those who never thought they were going to win would have felt had they lost. That there was no, from then on, I, I felt I have no choice as a human being but to root for the, for the favorite. There's something to that, actually. It is weird because rooting for the underdog requires that we um, be indifferent to the emotional distress of the person who expected to win. Potentially, or is it that we expect the joy to the underdog and those rooting to outweigh the to distress outweigh. to the favorite? Well, yes, so no, this is interesting. This gives you an insight into my psychology. I'm far more distress avoidant than I am joy uh, seeking. <laughs> so bad is really stronger than good for you, as it so often is in psychology. Yeah, the, uh, I'm, I, the fact that the underdog is happy means very little to me next to the distress of the, of the favorite. I okay. But you're right, you're right. You could have a completely, actually, it's so weird. I had never even framed it that way. <laughs> That's how distress-oriented distress I am. Well, let's build on that distress then and yeah. say, you know, I, I, one of the things that was striking to me about David and Goliath is the courage it took to, in some ways, challenge one of the core messages of, of Outliers, yeah. where, you know, I, I walked away from Outliers with this deep, d distress is a good word for it, around how these early advantages that just could come even from a birthday just build on themselves and accumulate and create this massively unfair set of circumstances. Yeah. And then here you come in with David and Goliath and say, wait a minute, what you thought was an advantage is actually a disadvantage and vice yeah. versa. How do you think about the reconciliation of those two? 
Well, I don't worry too much uh, about. There is some sense in which uh, David Glatt is an addendum to outliers. It simply says, let's let's uh, complicate our understanding of advantage. There is some sense in which David and Goliath is a rebuke, a mild rebuke to some of the more sweeping conclusions of outliers. I'm fine with that. I sort of think, um, you know, no book is the last word on any subject. And then, and I, you know, uh, you should, as a writer, at least partially contradict yourself um, on a routine <laughs> basis if you're going to remain <laughs> interesting. Um, you know, you've got to like, uh, I mean, you think there's a great moment in, um, you know, when Dick Nisbet, he makes a turn in his career as a psychologist where he goes from, remember, he thinks the fundamental attribution error in the beginning is fundamental. Yeah. And then he realizes, actually, no, it's cultural. And he does, and he puts out, and it doesn't refute the fundamental attribution error. It deepens our understanding of it to say, oh, actually, it has roots in Western culture, but you see a very different... And actually, then he writes that book about East-West, which is incredibly fascinating. So he gets two great books out of going back and going over and correcting his earlier position. That, to me, is uh, the model for how um, you ought to behave in the intellectual world, which is, I think, you should always double back and say, well, no, wait a minute. This is more complicated here. We can kind of... And it, contradiction is too strong a word. It's but you should you should be constantly revising your conclusions. I think. I think that's that's a mark of of an intellectual right? to to constantly be asking the questions as opposed yeah. to just fixing on an answer. Um, it's it's interesting though because as as a social scientist and as a, a writer and very much inspired by your work, I've been waiting for somebody to go around and do the the story of how Malcolm Gladwell generates his ideas. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if someone were to follow you from the inception to you know sort of picking a story or identifying a study to the full book, what what happens along the way? Well, I don't really know. I mean, sometimes I start. Uh, you know, there are. F- about five or six times a year, I go to the NYU library and I spend a couple of days um, just browsing is too mild a term, but wandering around, going through millions of journals in the most sort of serendipitous way I can, just to kind of see what's out there and see if I can stumble on something. So With, without, that, without a clear goal or direction, no just goal to explore. Whatsoever. No goal whatsoever. So there's that I do as a regular basis. And then I... I do a fair amount of speaking, and I always try and have conversations with people well outside my world. So today, I gave a talk this morning um, and, uh, in Philadelphia, and I was talking to a guy. One of the guys there was runs a uh, medical devices company, very, very small one. And so I started talking to him about because I've always had this idea in my head that it would be really, really fun to write, to compare the way uh, dogs are treated with the way humans are treated in it. Because they're not that dissimilar um, as problems for medical science. But, if the, but the, the, the systems that surround doggy healthcare and human healthcare are profoundly different, right? So, you know, uh, the same devices are used in various, you know, hip implants, or they're not the same, but analogous devices. Um, only you do a Complex knee surgery on your dog at seven thousand dollars, and you do it on a human being. It's a hundred. Now, is a human really uh, 
15 times more complex than a dog when it comes to, no. So there's something, but anyway, this, I sort of had this vague thought, and then I met this guy, and so I started asking about this, and he sort of started riffing on it and gave me his card. Now, that's sort of how it works, you know what I mean? Like, you take advantage of a little thought you had in your head, and when you meet someone by accident who happens to have specialized knowledge, you make sure you get his card. So that's sort of the... It's, it's fascinating to think about it being so nonlinear. Right, it's, no, it's, it's different from, although I suspect a lot of academic work is, um, I think it, it, uh, that, that, that it's not, the nonlinearity and the serendipity of it is what uh, makes it fun. And it, if it's too organized, it, it can fall flat on the page. I think my books to feel like, there is a random element in my books. I mean, they're supposed to be kind of like these kind of accidental wanderings through the world. Um, it's not supposed to be a grand plan. And if there did, I think that it would feel a little less, um, uh, it, would, it would lose some of, the books would lose some of their life. Mm-hmm. So I guess to, to spin off of that then, one of, one of the other things that's, that's always interesting is, you know, you've, you've done five books now. What has changed about the way that you think about the world, and particularly since this is a Wharton conversation about the world of, of work and leadership in organizations? I guess I have more respect for the diversity of, I realize now that an effective leader or manager can come in at a virtually infinite number of forms. Um, I have way more respect for the kind of heterogeneity of excellence. Um, and that's a, took a long time because it's so tempting to try and paint a very specific picture of what you think um, effective, say, leadership is, or what an effective organization looks like. And now I've, you know, I've sort of, the older I get and the more I sort of see, I realize, no, they come in, they have some high performers of one sort or another, have certain things in common, but they're almost more distinguished by what they don't have in common than what they do. And it's, understanding fit, to me, is a much more important issue than defining um, than defining the characteristics of excellence is understanding the combination of individual and organization and what um, and why at different points in your life cycle you might want a very, very different kind of person. Um, it's funny how the, in, the, the, the purest example of this is in sports where uh, the notion of fit between the athletes that you have and the coach that you hire is only occasionally considered in, you know, and I'll, you'll always read that they, they'll say, you know, they brought in such, and such a coach whose plotting style is ill-suited to the athletes that he has. And then you wonder, so then why did they bring in a coach? Never why, thought about it. Why, are you, why, why do a plotting style if no one on your team wants to play the plotting style? So there is this kind of, it's interesting how hard that notion is to, maybe it's because it's just, it renders the task of defining what you want uh, a lot more complicated, and we'd rather not deal with that, I suppose. I think that that's one of the, the fundamental contributions that you've made to the world, is to take people who have very simple ideas and get them to complicate them and question them and turn them upside down. Yeah. Uh, to close on this one, what idea have you put out in the world that you think has been most misunderstood that you would like to set the record straight on? Well, there's, there's <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> I get misunderstood a fair amount. Um, uh, that's an interesting thought. I am sometimes accused. The only the the thing that uh, uh, 
that uh, is said about my work that uh, irritates me the most is that I cherry pick. And I don't think I do at all. Um, or at least I don't think, I think I do what everyone does when they construct an argument, which is we require those who construct arguments to do a reasonable survey of the literature and um, choose those, uh, choose that evidence that is most relevant to their argument. Now, that doesn't mean that is in agreement with their argument, but rather that it's relevant to their argument. You have to sift. And I think I sift like anyone else sifts. But for some reason, that's become a kind of um, uh, that's become a kind of cliche about my work that I'm that I kind of um, simply zero in on things that accord with my my preconceptions. And but I don't think I do at all. I think I I, mean, I try to be pretty good about. Um, so there's that. And then there's people have simplified the ten thousand hours thing ridiculously. I've never said that ten thousand hours was was sufficient to achieve mastery, and that's been, people have caricatured that claim over and over again to my distress. Right? Yeah, I, I think certainly for me, it's, it's an interesting example that challenges us to think differently about expertise. And I, I think part of, of what's so exciting about David and Goliath is it, it shows just how clearly you are willing to say, look, you know, there's one side of our argument, but wait, there is another side of an argument. So yeah. uh, I think that's a, that's a great case for saying, look, the world is a lot messier than we think it is. Yeah. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.